Matthew 18. We started it a little bit on Sunday. To me, the chapter is about community. Jesus is driving somewhere. Um, both literally, he's walking from Caesarea Philippi down to Jerusalem. Like, this is a long walk, and as he's walking, he's talking to his disciples. So it's literally a walk, but he's also trying to get something across that's real important to his disciples. Chapter 16 is the church. Chapter 17 is the clash of kingdoms. Chapter 18 is the enemy within. So one of the greatest assets of the church is also its worst liability. And you know what that is? People. People. You and me. Because we're both those that partner with Jesus, but we're also almost like Peter. In one moment, he's saying, you are the Christ, the son of God. And in the next moment, he's being rebuked as Satan. That's the problem right there. Because we're both the asset and we're also the liability. So chapter 18 is, is Jesus saying this thing called community, here's how you walk it out. So verses one through six, we'll jump in right away. I just call it the people problem. Here's the people problem. Verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Mafia Jesus right there. No doubt about it. So Jesus now launches into this discussion because of this question. He's going to talk community throughout chapter 18, the asset of the church. It's something that, is, that groups try to replicate. So if you know anyone that's been in CrossFit, do you, know, do you know people in CrossFit? It becomes like a new cult, like a new church, like it's the religion of CrossFit. And they have actually, there's an article by the founder who said, we want to become a church. Not like Jesus Christ Church, but we want to be this community of people that function like a church, serve each other, help each other, know each other, all those kind of things. Uh, there's this atheist movement right now that is trying to replicate what happens on Sunday mornings, but in an atheist way. Like, it's hilarious. You read about it. They sing songs, like contemporary pop songs. Like, here's my number. Call me, maybe. Like, really? <laughs> you guys are going to sing that? And then they meditate, like they, they try to meditate to connect with something, and they're all atheists. Because 
in the heart of every person, we know we are designed for something like this. So our asset becomes a liability when what happens right here takes place. So these guys start to compare, right, and compete with each other. And because this kind of comparison and the other gospels, you can read them, talk about how they're actually arguing with each other who's the greatest. So they're kind of competing and comparing and they get dissatisfied. When you compare and compete, what happens to you? There's this kind of angst in you. We have a name for it now. It's called Facebook depression. Because you're on Facebook and you're looking at what everybody else is doing and then you're thinking, my life doesn't look like that. Well, there's a reason. No one posts pictures of themselves when they first wake up in the morning. (laughs) Or the overflowing sink full of dirty dishes. Or the giant mountain. I call it Mount Laundry, right? Just this, they don't post those pictures. It's pretend. And so when we start getting this idea like, oh, I wish I was, oh, who's the greatest? We become very dissatisfied. And when you're dissatisfied, most people start doing stuff about that dissatisfaction. And what we do typically hurts people. And so in a lot of people's lives, including believers, if you look behind us, there's this wake of ruined relationships. You just look behind like, I used to be friends with them or they used to be buddies, but somehow it broke down somewhere. So Jesus is gonna say in this chapter, the kingdom that I'm building, the church that I'm establishing, it will be different. That's not how things are gonna roll in this kingdom. So they come to him in the middle of this kind of talk, this walking talk, and they ask him this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Isn't that kind of a funny question? You know, Jesus, we've got this little problem, you know? And we think like you could help us out. We've been wondering, like, who's the greatest? <laughs> you know, I'm sure you know, you're, you're omnipotent. So which one of us is the best? That's what they're asking. I, I really wonder what they wanted Jesus to say. Peter's the best. And would that help the situation at all? Who's <laughs> gonna make things worse, right? Isn't a little bit of this in all of us? Aren't we always wanting to know where we stand in life? Where's our position? Where's our talent at? Where are we at? When we look at our friends or look at what they drive or whatever it is, we're always putting ourselves on a certain kind of this level. Like, okay, I'm right here. I'm better than him, but I'm not quite as good as him. We all have it. Muhammad Ali, who is well known for telling people that he was the greatest. He could answer this question for these disciples. (laughs) Who's the greatest? I am. There's this classic story told of him. He is on an airplane and, and he didn't, put the seat belt on. And so this, what do you call him? Flight attendant. You got to be politically correct. This flight attendant came down and said, sir, you need to put on your seatbelt. He replied, Superman don't need a seatbelt. To which she replied, Superman doesn't need an airplane. (laughs) There's all of us though. We all have this tinge, Superman. I have it in me. I go to school, I go to Western, and I'm there at Western, and there's always the question, who's the greatest? But in church circles, we ask it like this, how big's your church, right? There's the, where do you fit on the line? How big's your church? So I don't wanna play that game, and my answer has been, I simply say, well, we've been meeting for 10 years, and we still meet in an elementary school gym. To which they usually reply, bro, oh my goodness, let me pray for you. 
So there's a part of me that wants to say, you don't have to pray for me. I am successful, right? (laughs) It's in all of us, this desire. We all want to ask this question. It's in all of us. So it's not just, hey, those 12 morons. It's no, this is really all of us. Buddhism, if you know that faith, that religion, it is built on this one question. The whole thing of Buddhism is how to snuff out desire because desire causes problems. And so if we can just get rid of core desire, then everyone just be kind of comes, becomes zombies and no one cares. So if we can just get, it's called nirvana. Nirvana is the state where you, your desire to do anything just gets snuffed out. That's the whole eightfold noble path of nirvana is to lead you to no desire because it is such a problem. Is that Jesus' answer? Like just have no desire? No. He says something very different. He calls a little kid, puts him in the midst of them and says, you need to be like this child. Want to be great? Jesus doesn't say, that's a bad desire. Jesus says the way to greatness is to be like a child. Now, what does he mean? Well, he says here, humble himself like this child. Kids, if you know kids, they're not humble in the way that we think of humility, are they? If you have kids, you know kids are rarely humble. My son Elijah, just a classic boy. Uh, I had, him, had he and Myron, my two-year-old, on Saturday, so we, well, he wanted to go play tennis. So I went and bought some tennis balls, and we were heading over to Portola Park, and he said, Dad, I'm going to be so good at tennis. And so I said, buddy, why are you going to be so good at tennis? He said, because I played the, Wii St- the PlayStation Wii game and I rocked it. And real tennis is so much harder than the video game. I just said, no, it isn't, bud. He's like, watch me. I did. He's not Andre Agassi. <laughs> it's just in, there's this kind of thing in kids that it's, watch me. I was cutting down a tree in my front yard. It's dead. Myron, my two-year-old comes out. Dad, I want to do that. Give me the chainsaw. I'm like, buddy, you're two. You can't have a chainsaw. When you're three, we'll buy your own. But right now, two's too young, right? Just give it to me. I wanna, whatever you're doing, I want to do that. Right? It, so Jesus says, humble, what does he mean? I think in kids, that kind of desire is actually a good thing. Because something happens to us as we grow older, we almost put a glass ceiling on ourselves. We do, we do it ourselves like, I, I can't do that anymore. I don't think that's actually good. I like the Caleb mentality where he's 84 saying, I want the mountain with a giant. That's the right mentality. I think that quality in kids is really good where they haven't capped themselves and said, well, this is as good as I get. No. So what humility is Jesus talking about? I think it's this. Here's what I've noticed about my kids. They'll they'll dare and they'll do, do anything, but they're very quick to realize this when they're over their head. Dad, help me. I'm over my head. I'm drowning. I'm dying. Dad, help me. I think that's actually the humility God's looking for. People that'll dare great things for him, but very quickly realize, I need help here. Dad, help me. The older you get, the harder it is to ask for help, isn't it? The older you get, the more you're like, well, I should already know how to do that, so I better not ask for help. The older you get, it's harder to ask for help. I'll give one example. Men, when you're lost, you ask for help. No way. I'm finding a shortcut right now, honey. This is a new way. This is an adventure right now. 
It's the refusal to ask for help. The humility that I think God wants in us is daring, no doubt, but also dependence. I am dependent upon you. God, help me here. And let's go do great things. Let's not put a glass ceiling on ourselves. Let's go for it. So that's what greatness is. And then Jesus says this, verse six, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, these are believers, young believers, it would be better Jesus is saying, if you had all the options in front of you, here's your better option. Get a giant stone, tie it to your neck, drive out into the Pacific and jump in. That's a better option than offending one of these that believe in me. That's pretty hardcore. I use this verse. It's counseling 101 for me. That... God is really serious about those that hurt his children. God is really, really serious. See, we like the sight of God, like his love and his mercy and his grace, and I'm so glad there is. But do you know, there's a just side to God. So in Exodus 34, it's a really key passage, verses six and seven. Moses has been asking, you know, what do you like? I wanna see you. So God shows up and passes by Moses while he's in the cleft of the rock and he declares to Moses, here's how I am. I'm compassionate. I'm loving. My hased is faithful. It goes on and on and on. I forgive to a thousand generations, right? But I will by no means clear the guilty. You see both right there, the, the love and the mercy and the compassion of God. But on the other side of it, you see God saying, I'm not gonna clear the guilty. There will come a time when justice must be done. And we read about it. And usually when we think about God's justice, we think about hell and fire and brimstone and all that kind of stuff. And people will ask me like, Matt, is the fire and brimstone of hell, is that literal or is it symbolic? I say, oh, it's symbolic. And they're like, whoo. And I say, it symbolized something much worse. It's like the most, it's the worst thing that we have in language. It's worse than that, right? Because you can't have outer darkness and fire, right? Fire is light, outer darkness. So, so Jesus just, those metaphors are saying, this thing is so bad. We don't really have a language for it. It's worse than you could possibly imagine. Justice will come. Those that have been hurt, Jesus says it's better if they had just tied a rock around their neck and throw themselves into the sea because my justice will prevail. It's coming. So in Revelation 14, 10, it says this, that those, that, it's the earth dwellers, those that have rejected God. They don't want anything to do with the kingdom. They don't want anything to do with God. They have said, they've essentially said, forget you, God. We don't want you. So that's what Revelation is. So by chapter 14, verse 10, it says this, they drank the cup of God's wrath, full strength. Back in that time, if you had a glass of wine, you would typically mix one part of wine, one part of water. There'd be some mixture. You didn't drink it full strength. And throughout history, throughout our age right now, God always turns to mercy and grace first. It's not full strength. So Lamentations 3, Jeremiah writes, if it wasn't for your mercy, we'd all be consumed. Habakkuk 3.1, 
Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. And that's what God's doing for us right now. But there comes a time when those that have hurt God's kids for so long, God finally says, enough, enough. The next question I get when I'm counseling people on this, you know what it is? Why is he waiting? Why did he wait? Why did I get hurt? Why did he wait? Well, Jesus will answer that in verses 10 through 14, and we'll get there in a second. So he says this, verse seven, we did seven through nine on Sunday. I'll just reread it. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Profound vigilance. The believer, you and I, were called to a profound vigilance. A character evaluating vigilance. Lord, is it I, as the disciples said? Is this disturbance? Am I causing this? Because if it is, I'm gonna get radically serious about dealing with it. Because we live in a community of other believers and I wanna make sure I'm not offending people. I'm not causing them to sin. Radical. Paul goes this far. He says, if eating meat causes someone to be offended or stumbled, I will never eat meat again. That's a mature believer because he says this church, this thing that God is building is so important. The gathering of the saints, the preaching of the gospel, the evangelizing of the world, the edification, exhortation of all believers, the exaltation of God. These things are so important. If my eating meat causes anything to come in between somebody and those things, I'll never eat a steak again. That's radical, radical living. Vigilance. So that was Sunday. You can get that if you want to. Now we get to, I just call it the priority of the father. This is God's priority. He says it right here. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Who are the little ones? You look back to verse six. Those who believe in me, new believers. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God's priority. He says, verse 10, don't despise these little ones. New believers, those that have put their faith in Jesus. I think as mature believers, we have to be careful that we don't offend new believers. What do I mean? I think sometimes new believers can jump on things 
that like we've walked past and we can despise them when they jump on it. You know what I'm saying? So a new believer can read like, man, the Bible says pray without ceasing. You can see them like always praying or always bowing their head, just praying a lot. And you're like, what are you doing? Oh, I read this Bible verse and it says pray without ceasing. And we can be like, oh, that's so silly. Pretty soon you'll grow out of that. You know, I tried that once. It doesn't work. Pretty soon you'll be like me, right? Or they're always talking about Jesus, sharing Jesus, talking about Jesus. You're like, really? Come on, are you always gonna be talking about Jesus? I mean, come on, grow out of it. Pretty soon you'll be like me and you'll talk about how terrible the world is. I can't wait for then. Gotta be careful. Here's what I do now. When young people are really excited about something, maybe even something that I don't theologically agree with, but it's not heresy, I just say, man, that's awesome. Like, I don't wanna start a fight over things that don't matter. And if you feel that way and you're excited about that, praise God. I'm not gonna rain down cold water on you, throw a wet blanket on you. Sometimes you just let people, hey, walk that out. That's not heresy. Maybe that's not exactly what I'm doing, but hey, walk it out. That's fine. Be careful of that as mature believers. I think the best way to do that, and I think the biblical way of doing this is old believers should always be connected to a new believer because it keeps us from becoming grumpy and old and stodgy and like, oh, I don't like that or oh, that's stupid or oh, why do you do it that way? You get the excitement and you're like, hey, that, that is exciting. Hey, yeah, I should try praying again. You know, I haven't been praying very well lately. Yeah, it's really healthy, really healthy. It's Paul with Timothy. You see those relationships in the Bible. Really good. So look out, don't do that. Why? And here's the reason why. I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. This is one of those texts from where we get guardian angels. And if there are guardian angels, mine needs a big fat raise. Giant, because I'm alive and it's a miracle. But if they're a guardian angel, where should that angel be? Guarding me, right? Where are these angels? In heaven. It's something else. And the way that I put it is this. Um, I think it's saying this. If there's a person at Edgewater or at your work or at another church that you don't like, be so careful about what you say because they have a defense attorney who is besties with God. Staring God in the face. That's what it's saying, I think. Oh, be so careful that you don't offend. Because they have a defense attorney who is saying right next, face to face with God. Not Facebook friends. You know, you got 500 of them. This is somebody that's in God's presence who's gonna tell God what you said. That's essentially what's being said there. So be so very careful what you say. Because God is so committed to his kids that he will depart from the 99 and he will run after that one straggling, crazy dude that's run from him. That's how committed he is. That's what this is saying. Be careful. And isn't that the norm? Isn't if we own something, if you lose something of it, don't you go after it? We don't own sheep today. But let's say you have a bank account that has $10,000 in it and the next day you check it, it's 9,000. Are you gonna be like, you know, mistakes were made. Banks just make mistakes, no big deal. No, you're gonna go after it. I should say in Grant's Pass, if you have $100 in your bank account and you're missing 10 bucks. (laughs) 
right? That's the norm. When you own something, when it's your possession, you take care of it. God takes care of his possessions. Do you know that? He takes care of his possessions and you belong to him. The one straying sheep is the bad sheep, right? It's the one that's disobeying. It's the one that's wild. And that's the one God pursues and gets. I take such confidence in this, that God is a pursuing, his priority is keeping all of his possessions. I will do everything in my power, not only protect them from other believers, they don't get offended, but also to go after them when they stray. My best example of this, I don't have sheep, not a sheep farmer, but I had a dog, Chloe. And for the first year of Chloe's life, when she was a puppy, golden retriever, I did not really like her. She bit my girls. They didn't like that. She chewed on the trim of my house. There's still chunks missing from the trim of my house. She killed a bunch of fruit trees. She was just a general disaster. Just anything she did was just disaster. My wife probably asked 15 times, let's get rid of her, right? So that was the state of Chloe. Well, when she's about nine months old, just in the worst rebellious time of her puppyhood, I decided to take this hike down Rainy Falls. So at this time, I just have two girls, Carissa and Bella. And so we decided we're gonna take a hike. We take the, the south side of the river, which is the sunny side. Uh, it was cold. So I thought we'll take the south side, but it has big cliffs. So we start hiking and Chloe's doing her thing or chaos. And, and my daughter, Carissa, who's about three, and my wife are running ahead a bit. And I've got Isabella and I throw her up on my shoulder. So I'm a little bit behind and they go up around this corner and I hear this scream and we're up a hundred feet up off this cliff. I just hear this scream. And so I imagine just the worst thing in the world. Like my daughter, Carissa fell off. So I grab Bella and I start running up there. I come around the corner and I see my wife and my daughter looking over the cliff. And there's my dog, Chloe, about 10 feet down, standing on a ledge of another 60 feet right there. And I'll be honest. Yes, <laughs> there was a moment where I said, well, God, you took care of it, didn't you? <laughs> Let's go. But I didn't, you know why? She belongs to me. So I risked my life, went down there, got a hold of her, put a leash on her, lifted her up. I got scratched. My whole body is scratched up from her, pushed her up. Uh, Charity managed to get a hold of the leash and we pulled her up and we went home. But I couldn't leave her there because she belongs to me. God, so much more. He leaves the 99, goes after the one because we belong to him. Take confidence in that. That's the God that we serve. A God who says, I take care of my possessions. Even the strangest, craziest, runninest rebel, I go after them. Even they bit my daughters and chewed my fruit trees and took the trim off my house, I go after them because they belong to me. And then, here's our answer to why he waits. Verse 14. So it's not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Why does God wait? Why doesn't justice come now? Because God wants more people to spend eternity with him and he waits. I'll tell you, I'm glad he waited till I turned 20. I'm sure glad he waited 
I'm glad. And right now there's somebody 19 and 11 months that God says to me, Matt, I'm waiting for him too. I'm waiting. Second Peter 3, 8. Right? God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. First Timothy 2, 4. God wants all to be saved. That's God's will. Now we can get into all these debates about God's will. Does God have two wills? Does God have multiple? Is there the creative will? Is there the, the decided will? I just say, real simple, Jesus says, it is not my father's will who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's God's will. I'm all to be saved. Now he's given us free will and you get in all these debates. I just come back to God's will is for everyone to be saved. And he made a way through Jesus Christ. That's God's will. And there's these, these doctrines that I struggle with, double predestination, you know what that is? Okay, double predestination is some are predestined for heaven. Double predestination is some are destined for hell. I say, Jesus <laughs> says it's God's will that none of these should perish. And yes, free will comes in. Yeah, we, you can get all these debates. I just come back to, he's a good, generous God that wants to spend eternity with his kids and he wants as many there as possible. And so right now he waits. My justice is coming, but I'm waiting because I want as many as possible to spend eternity with me. That's the answer I give. So now that's God's priority. Here's our priority, church priority. It's huge. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Anyone? Never happen? Should be when your brother sins against you. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Church priority. First, be like a child, humility. Then verses 15 through 20, second priority of the kingdom, honesty. Be honest. Tell people their faults. If a brother sins against you, I have in my Bible the words, you go circled. If a brother sins against you, you go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, who actually does that? Who really carries this out? If we did, 99% of the issues in church would be resolved in verse 15. But what do we actually do? Who do we actually tell? Our wife, our husband, friends, pastors, elders, deacons, other church members, parking lot guy, doorkeepers, neighbors. <laughs> Homeless person, random homeless person, like you wouldn't believe what this guy did, right? And then who hears about what you just said? The other guy, so who does he tell? Wife, pastors, friends, elders, deacons, church members, parking lot guys, doorkeepers, same random homeless person. 
like, you wouldn't believe us. You just, just told me the same thing about you, right? And what do you end up with? It's a giant mess, a giant mess. If we just did, verse 15, a lot of our issues go away, but you gotta do it right. Like, what do you actually do? It says, Jesus says, you tell him his fault. What does that mean? If you look at Luke 17, three, it says this, you rebuke him. (laughs) Who rebukes people? If we actually rebuke people, we'd be done with the problem. But most people walk out reconciliation like this. Oh, you know what? It's okay, it's fine. No problem, oh yeah. We don't really wanna do the nitty gritty of rebuke and telling faults. We don't really wanna do that. So instead we're like, it's all fine, but guess what? Is it really fine in your heart? No, because you still stir on it and you still think about it and it's still there. Why? Because you haven't walked out telling him his fault and rebuking him. And because we don't really tell him the fault or rebuke in that way, we're never really cleansed of it. And so we hold on to it and becomes bitterness and we become just a different kind of person. Not the kind of person Jesus wants. We're holding on to it. But if we actually really sat with people one-on-one and told them, you hurt me. The words you said, the actions you took, it hurt me and I have to pay now for that pain. The fact that you talked behind my back has ruined my reputation. I've lost money because of that. This is what it's done to me. If you really told him or her her faults and rebuked them, what it actually does to you is it cleanses you. Ha, I'm free from that. And when they listen, receive that, oh my goodness, you're right. You're right. I did do that to you. And I forgot how much it was gonna cost you. When that is really walked out well, I've watched it. I've watched bitterness fall from people's faces where they're just cleansed of it. Ha, instead of the easy, ah, yeah, he's all fine. No, it's not. No, it's not. You have to really do this. Walk this out. You gain that person back. That's what church is supposed to do. That's what it's supposed to be. We're called to be different, but we're not called to be doormats. Too often, we're just, we think, oh, we just gotta let people walk all over us. No, you don't. Jesus talks about tell him his fault to his face. Rebuke that person. Get it out. Be honest. And then be able to walk out and be reconciled. That's step one. And if that does not work, if that doesn't work, then it says, take somebody else. This is protection now. Jesus doesn't want you exposed to somebody that is not willing to repent or not willing to be the person that listens well. So now he says, take protection. And I tell people that have been sexually abused or something, you skip step one. This is too hard for you. You skip step one. You take somebody with you because you just need that protection. You take somebody who will walk with you and who will listen and be a neutral party and be, oh, hmm, okay, let's think about this. I've seen this work so well. I had this this issue and these two people came to me. They had already tried among themselves and they asked me to be part of it. So they were talking, it was a business deal and and we just talked and we actually prayed. Um, I don't know what I was doing there so much rather than just asking questions. And then at the end of this, uh, the one gentleman said, what did this cost you? And the guy replied, it cost me $1,000 a month for 12 months. And this man pulled out a checkbook and wrote a check for $12,000. 
And so I said, you know, I've got something against you as well. (laughs) Keep that checkbook out. No. It was just this Holy Spirit moment of humility and honesty where two people really met, talked, realized, oh, okay, I see where you're at. All right, let's do this. Jesus does not command us to be reconciled with everybody, does he? Quite the opposite. You reconcile with people that are repentant. You don't reconcile with people that are not repentant. It really says, well, if they won't do that, then you bring them to the church. And if, if the church doesn't work, then you treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile. So what does it mean to bring somebody to the church? Does it bring them to all three services at Edgewater or inside both campuses? I mean, wouldn't that be weird? I mean, if we really did that, we just cut out praise time and just go to slandering people. That's all we do. You know, today we're just gonna slander people. So we're just gonna bring them up. Don't trust this guy because this, you know, it'd be crazy. And most of them would be strangers. So I don't think that's what it's asking here. It's, it's the group that you're connected with, right? If you have a home group, then it'll be in a home group situation. If I did something because of my position, I would come up to all three services, all campuses and say, this is what happened because of my position and because of my connection. But just your random person, no way. That's not what's being asked for here. Be in front of complete strangers. It's who you're connected with, the people you're connected with. And what does it mean to treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector? Is that the shunning practice that happens in some circles? Speak to the hand, don't come over to my house, don't talk to my kids, don't call me, I'm blocking you. Is that what it means to treat somebody like a Gentile or a tax collector? I just go back in the book of Matthew and say, how did Jesus treat tax collectors? Well, Matthew 9, 9, he called one and said, hey, become part of my crew. Then in the next verse, he has a party with a bunch of them. And the Pharisees get all chapped about it. What? You can't eat with those guys. We're supposed to shun them. How's he treat Gentiles? Well, he heals the centurion's servant. And then the Canaanite woman in chapter 15, he deals with her, walks with her through faith and then casts a demon out of her daughter. Hmm. Doesn't sound like shunning to me. I see it as you treat them almost like an unbeliever. So you're really trying to, you're, you're sharing the gospel with them now. You're sharing the power of Christ with them. You are, if you would, on your best behavior around them. Why? Because you want to win them back. Your whole goal is not, oh, I just want to punish you. The whole goal of Christianity is, man, bring as, none should perish. That's the whole goal. I want you back in the fold. I want to be reconciled with you. So I'm going to treat you the way Jesus treated tax collectors and Gentiles. That's what I think. And when you do that, then Jesus repeats something. You should have heard this before, verse 18 and 19. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. What is that echoing? Matthew 16, the establishment of the church. I'm gonna build a church at the gates of hell. It will not prevail against it. And whatever you bind will be loosed and whatever you loose will be bound. I'm gonna give you the keys of the kingdom. What Jesus is saying is this, when the church is actually unified and walking this thing outright, there's great power. What you bind is bound and what you loose is loosed. I think the reason the church is weak so often is because we don't actually walk out what Jesus asked us to walk out. Well, you're not unified. 
You're not loving. You're not an outpost of the kingdom. You're none of those things. So you're powerless now. But when we walk this stuff out right, then the CrossFits are like, that's what we want right there. The atheist groups are like, well, that's it. But when we're no different, when we're just as divided as everybody else, why would they ever come here? We're supposed to be demonstrating that we belong to a different kingdom. And this kingdom is about reconciliation and doing the hard work it requires to keep unity in community. Jesus says, when that happens, power. So then you get verse 21. And Peter asked this. Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter now has been paying attention. He just asked the right question. He's getting it. The dude's smart. He just picked up. I see what you're saying now. Like, that's radical. So how many times do I have to do this then? And at this time, the rabbi said, you forgive three times and then you're done with that person. So Peter is trying to be radically generous in his own thinking. Should I do it seven times? Over double what our culture does. It's really the perfect question, right? I think he was expecting Jesus to say like, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You are the most generous, gracious guy. You are the greatest. Let's go back to that question. It's you, right? Jesus doesn't. He says, I do not say to you seven times, my translation says, but 77 times. Some translations say seven times 70. There's a, you know, the Greek can kind of go either way. I think it's 77 and here's why. Because of biblical theology. You go back to the book of Genesis, you have this guy, his name is Lamech. Lamech was the great, great grandson of Cain. Remember Cain? Cain didn't reconcile with his brother, did he? What did he do? killed him, killed him. And then he is shut, he is put out of community. Because of this, he, he, he runs away. And Cain says, hey, my punishment is too great for me. People will find me. My other brothers will find me and they'll kill me. And so what does God say? I put a mark on Cain. And if you bring vengeance upon him, then there will be seven times retribution upon you. Right? So Cain goes and he builds this city, has this grandson. His name is Lamech. Lamech kills a person. Lamech then makes this quote. He says, if a seven times vengeance was on Cain, 77 times vengeance will be upon me. You touch me, I'll get you back 77 times. It's a city of Cain, the city we've lived in ever since, where the norm is what? Not forgiveness, but radical vengeance. You get me? Oh, I'll show you 77 times worse. Jesus is flipping the Cain city on its head and saying there's a new city that we belong to, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And our city is gonna be marked not by radical vengeance, the cities of man. Our cities are gonna be marked by unbelievable forgiveness, 77 times forgiveness. Now he's not giving us a number where you like check off, right? Like your, your neighbor keeps putting his garbage can in your driveway, so you have like a Google calendar marked, okay, neighbor's garbage, and you just keep making them, 71, 72, finally 77, I'm smashing his garbage can, yeah, 
No. It's just bigger than you can count. That's what he's saying about forgiveness. Bigger than you can count. So are you to forgive everyone? You don't reconcile with everyone. We just saw that. You reconcile with repentant people. Do you forgive everybody? Has anyone here read the Simon Wiesenthal essay called Sunflower? Anybody? Okay, I'll tell you about it. So he's a Holocaust survivor. He's in the Holocaust and, um, you know, just brutal conditions, untold horror. He's at a death camp waiting to die when a nurse grabs him because he just happened to be the closest Jew and brought him over to this Nazi soldier who had been mortally wounded, was on death's doorstep and wanted to say something to him. So Simon Weisenthal comes over to his bedside and this Nazi says, I need, he grabs a hold of him. I need you to forgive me. On the part of your people, I need you to forgive me. And then he begins to tell him the story. A year before this, I was commanded to go to this house where there was 300 Jews inside. And we were told to burn the house and kill everybody. And so we set this house on fire. And I could hear women and babies and children screaming. And they started jumping out the windows. And I started killing them as they jumped out the windows. And we killed all 300 of them. And I need you to forgive me. I'm dying. I need you to forgive me. And so Simon Weisenthal hit his hand away, turned around, and walked away from him. That's the essay. Go in peace. Let's, we're done. I'm kidding. Everyone's just like, <laughs> that's a really sad story. It is very sad. Here's what's happened with that story. Uh, it was published, I don't know, 50 years ago. And every publication now includes more people that respond to that story. Like great authors and great thinkers and philosophers and, and doctors and all these kind of people are, are writing in, how would they have responded, right? Desmond Tutu, for instance, the Dalai Lama. Was he right? Was he wrong? And you can go down right now. The book is at 53. There's 53 essays in responses, response to him. Did he do the right thing? Did he do the wrong thing? Do I not know? What is it? You read the majority of these. You go down. The vast majority of the 53, guess what they say? Don't forgive. You do not forgive. And they all have the reasons why. Don't forgive, don't forgive, don't forgive. You did the right thing, Simon Weisenthal. You shouldn't forgive. What would Jesus say? Well, let's read. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. (laughs) You see a little bit of his pride right there. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. 
I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, literally the torturers. They tortured to see, did you hide some money somewhere? (laughs) Until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Hmm. Just to put this in context real quick and we're done. The words Jesus uses, talent. Talent was the largest denomination of money in the Greek language. It was as big as it gets. We'd say gazillion. He's a gazillionaire, right? Um, 10,000 or the Greek myriad is the largest number in the Greek language. So Jesus uses two of the biggest numbers that, that they had, the talent and myriad, a myriad of talents. There's no bigger number he could have come up with, right? A talent was what a man would make if he saved every penny and worked every day for 20 years. That's a talent of money. The guy owes 10,000 talents. He essentially owes 5,000 lifetimes to this master, right? He says, I'm gonna pay you every cent. <laughs> oh, you're right. The other guy owes him 100 denarii. A denarii is what you would make in one day. So the guy owes him 100 days labor. Easily payable. He puts him in prison. Can you pay it in prison? No. See, this isn't about getting the money. This is about getting vengeance. It's vindictive. I'm putting you in prison. I'm being vindictive towards you. All right, so, so that kind of puts it in context. So this is what Jesus says. You forgive. How would Jesus have answered Simon Weisenthal. Miroslav Volf, who's a really fantastic writer, he's a professor at Harvard, went through the ethnic cleansings in the Balkans, lost family members, knows things. He's not an ivory tower guy. He says this, forgiveness flounders when we exclude our enemy from the community of humanity and exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. Forgiveness fails when I say to that person, they're not really human, they're something else. They're a whatever. They always, they never. And when I say of myself, I'm not a sinner, I'm a good person. That's when it actually fails. This story reverses it, right? They're both debtors, right? One owes a massive debt, the other a minor debt. It's reversing all those things. So the father forgives you 5,000 lifetimes. Once you forgive 100 days. In comparison, what this is saying, if you look at all that God has forgiven you, he's the master. It's the 10,000 talents. If you look at all that God has forgiven you, then our only right response is, I'll forgive you the 100 denarii. It does not say be reconciled with the guy. It doesn't talk about that. That's repentance brings reconciliation, right? But you forgive, You forgive and you forgive and you forgive. And it works. I've told you about Gordon Wilson. Remember him? He's the guy that stopped the IRA and the war between the United Kingdom and the IRA. There's the bombing that happened. Uh, He was covered in rubble. His daughter was killed in it. He was pulled out of the rubble. BBC was right there with a news camera, with a uh, radio mic, interviews him live expecting him to be like, we got to hammer these guys. Instead, he says, no way. I forgive them today. I forgive the people that just murdered my daughter. And they say that was the death nail in the conflict of the IRA in the United Kingdom. That was the death nail. 
Because one man said, no more. No more retribution. I'm not living in the city of Cain anymore. I'm living in the city of Christ and I'll forgive because I've been forgiven much. It happens in our own country. Dylan Roof, a year ago, walked into the um, African Methodist Episcopalian Church in South Carolina, Charleston. Went to a prayer meeting, sat through the prayer meeting, then shot nine people dead. Ethel Lance, one of the people who was killed, her daughter came and spoke to him on TV. You should Google it. It's phenomenal. She rebukes him. She does a perfect rebuke. You took something from me that I will never get back. I will never hug her. I'll never kiss her. I'll never be able to talk to her. You took that from me. Strong rebuke. And then she says, but I forgive you. I pray God has mercy on your soul. Forgiveness. See, it works. When the church walks this out well, we demonstrate we're no longer living in the city of Cain with retribution and bitterness and wrath and anger and all that stuff that's so destructive. We're moving into a new city, the city of New Jerusalem. We're an outpost of the kingdom. And the way that we live out life is way different. Chapter 18, we pursue the lost. We forgive. We pursue reconciliation as hard as it is. We pursue it because that's where power comes in this unity in community. That's what it does. And science has found this out. Do any research on unforgiveness. Like they, they connected these people to wires and then had them remember like an episode of their life that was, that was hard. And like there was a cascade of chemicals and lights in their brain that just showed, oh, you're destroying yourself. Your memory of this event is poisoning you. You are literally, Hebrews 12, 15, that bitterness is defiling your body. It's good for you and it demonstrates a difference. So we're gonna take communion together. There's no better way to remember the 10,000 myriad, the 5,000 lifetimes we've been forgiven than by taking communion. And it is the power that enables us to forgive. So we're gonna hand that out, hold it, and we will take it together.